This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. Paul Tufts, best-selling book, How Children Succeed, first introduced us to research that shows that children's character strengths, like grit and perseverance and self-control and optimism, play a critical and often overlooked role in their success. After that book came out, Tufts spent months on the road speaking to teachers and community groups, and after each talk, he would often get the same question from concerned readers in the audience. Okay, now that we know this, what do we do? Well, Tuff has spent the last year and a half trying to answer that question, and the result is his new book, Helping Children Succeed. His conclusion is, we should stop trying to teach qualities like grit and self-control to our kids. Instead, he argues, we need to recognize that these capabilities are the product of children's environment in the home and in school. If we want to make kids more motivated, engaged, and productive in the classroom, he says, we have to find innovative ways to change those environments. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Paul Tuff about his approach to the educational challenges that are faced by low-income children. He draws on groundbreaking new research in neuroscience and psychology and education. And he's going to show us what practical steps the adults in their lives, from parents and teachers to policymakers and philanthropists, can take to improve these kids' chances for a positive future. More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brat after this from the MrTab.com radio network. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> huh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Did you know one in three adults is at risk for kidney disease? If you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you could be the one. I was looking in the newspaper and saw an article that said if you have symptoms for kidney disease, you should see your doctor. And I really didn't expect anything because I felt healthy. I didn't worry about my borderline high blood pressure. Turns out it was silently inflicting kidney disease. When you know, it's almost too late. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org now. You know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is a follow-up, to a certain extent, to your book, How Children Succeed. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got from that one to this one. Sure. Well, there were a couple of things. One was, uh, so How Children Succeed was a book that, that focused on this set of qualities that are sometimes called non-cognitive skills, sometimes called character strengths, things like grit and curiosity, conscientiousness, self-control, and optimism. Uh, and it looked at the research that showed that these were particularly important in young people's success. Um, <clears throat> and after that book came out, I went around and spoke to different groups of um, teachers and parents and uh, people who are working directly with children. And I found, especially when I was talking to people who are working with kids uh, who are growing up in poverty or other kinds of adversity, the question I kept getting from them was, um, you know, the stories are 
fascinating. The characters are great. What do we actually do? What can we take from this research that will help us change the way we practice tomorrow morning? Um, and so I decided I wanted to write a book that answered that question, that tried to distill from all of this um, often kind of abstract research real strategies and solutions for people who are working with kids and especially kids in poverty. Okay, well, let's talk about, I start with the kids in poverty thing, because I think that, that there was a rather, well, I have to say that the book has got a number of situations where the the data that you're presenting is rather horrifying. Uh, you talk about in 2013, the United States reached an educational milestone. For the first time, a majority of the country's public school students fell below the federal government's threshold for being low income. How did we ever get to that point? We hear a lot about income inequality. We hear a lot about the rich and poor and the rich are getting richer. But I don't think most people would say that more than half of people out there, more than half of families, are below the poverty line. Well, to, to clarify one thing, so in order to, to meet the government's definition for low income, meaning you're eligible for a free or reduced price lunch, you're not actually below the poverty line. You're below 180% okay. of the poverty line. So, well, you're still uh, not doing well. You're still not doing well, absolutely. So I think that part of what's happened to, to make that, that group so big is that child poverty has increased over the last uh, decade or so. But I think it's also that, that that sort of next tier of not technically poor but not doing great families, um, those are families, I think, that have really struggled since the, the recession, the big recession began back in, in 2008, 2009. Um, and, and I think that those are, you know, the families who haven't recovered uh, as well as other families have. And so, yeah, I, I was really struck by that statistic because, you know, for, for a long time, for more than a decade, I've been writing especially about kids who are growing up in, in low-income families. Um, but I think there's always been this this sense in our country that this is sort of a, a, a you know, a, a serious problem, but a small problem. You know, this is like there's there's sort of mainstream education, and then there are the problems of the poor kids over here. Um, and so the fact that low-income kids are now the majority, you know, barely the majority, but technically the majority of students in our public schools, um, I, it just sort of shifted my thinking to, to feeling like this is really a, a problem that we all need to solve. It's no longer something that we can just say is you know, a side issue for poverty experts to deal with. This is something that, that uh, we all need to take on. And certainly right. if you're a teacher in the United States today, you know these statistics. You know that this is a big part of what teaching now is. Right. So before we get into the, okay, what do you do about this, I think we need to talk just a little bit about, without sounding harsh, so what? You know, so does, and, and you're going to answer that, I know, because there are quite a few deficits that kids who are low income have relative to their, their higher income peers. But talk a little bit about that. What, what is going on? I mean, how, how are lower income kids suffering and, and what's happening with them? Good question. And, and so this question of sort of what is it about, about growing up in, in poverty or in a low-income family that makes it difficult for students to succeed is something that this is now my third book. And in some ways, it's a question that's motivated all of these books. And so I've been, I've been trying to figure that out for a long time. And I think it's, it's important to say at the beginning that certainly a lot of the problems in education that I, that I write about, um, especially in this new book, are, are more common among uh, kids who live in low-income families. But they aren't um, exclusively the problems of kids who, who live in uh, low-income families, and they also aren't true of every kid who, who grows up in a low-income family. There are lots of kids who are growing up in poverty who are um, thriving and excelling, even excelling at school. But that said, um, what 
what researchers and especially psychologists and neuroscientists have uh, been able to demonstrate uh, with increasing clarity over the last decade or so is that growing up in any form of adversity and, and, and poverty is, is often uh, uh, an environment in which this happens is stressful for kids. Um, there's just more likely to be instability and, and chaos and uncertainty uh, in a child's life. And that has a huge impact on the development of their uh, sort of neurological connections, their stress response system. And, and, and this, this, the impact of stress is something that has become more and more clear to me um, as I've done this reporting. Uh, it's something that neuroscientists, I think, are much more aware of than the rest of us. When kids experience what some pediatricians call toxic stress in childhood, um, it it has a, a biological effect on the way that they develop. They're, you know, it activates their fight or flight response. It, you know, pumps them full of uh, adrenaline. It activates their immune system in a negative way. I mean, in I, a negative yeah, way, exactly. That, yeah, and it, it, these adapt- one of the interesting things about it is, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, these adaptations make sense, right? You're, if your system perceives that you're surrounded by by threats uh, and dangers, it reacts by preparing for those threats. That makes sense if you know in a in a short term situation. Exactly. It doesn't make yeah. sense if you're you know in 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 public school in kindergarten because you're you're you know when your fight or flight response is constantly amped up, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to sit still. It's hard to get along with your peers. And and that can cause long term permanent damage. I mean uh, f- physiological damage. I mean it's it can can affect the heart, the circulatory system. It can affect uh, all sorts of other things and cause. End up with kids who are sicker, physically sicker, right? And adults, yeah. I yeah. mean, so w- one of the one of the big pieces of research that I, I wrote about in this book is this thing called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and what it demonstrated is, is that when, if you take any group of of adults, even middle class adults, the ones who've experienced significant amounts of stress and trauma in childhood, have cancer rates that are twice as high as normal, heart disease rates that are twice as, as high as normal. This is something that is a problem well into adulthood. You know, it's interesting the the connection between education and health. But it seems like it can can go both ways, right? I mean, it's not necessarily that one causes the other, but they both seem to be associated with each other somehow, that people who have less education tend to be less healthy. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying in a way is that, that kids who are, are less healthy and that could be less healthy because of the stress in their lives are not going to be learning as much because their brains may not be able to focus or concentrate on things. So you end up with this, this uh, cycle that just never seems to have an end. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that it can have an end, and I think there's lots that the rest of us can do to, to intervene in and, and support the lives of people who are living in those stressful situations, and especially uh, children, to help them overcome these problems. This is, this is what that stress research really makes clear, is that when kids are growing up in, in intensely stressful environments, it's bad for them in all kinds of ways. One of the places where uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to steer us in terms of intervention is not just to wait for school um, to, to try to intervene in the educational lives of, the, of children who are growing up in adversity, but to do interventions as well in the first few years of life. If we can prevent uh, these instances of toxic stress in the lives of, of young kids, then we don't have to you know, remediate them later on. And what does that look like? Well, it seems like one of the most important um, levers that we have to intervene in the lives of especially young kids in the first, say, three years of their lives is their parents. Um, one thing that really, another number that really struck me was the United States spends uh, less 
on a, a lower percentage of our of the money that we spend um, on education on early childhood than almost any other developed country. And even among the, the money that we spend in early childhood, only 6% goes to the first three years. The other 94% goes to three and four and five-year-olds. And there's this huge opportunity in those early years because that's when so many of these uh, stress-related adaptations take place. But it's a difficult moment in which to intervene. You know, mm-hmm. there is no pre-K, there is no school for kids who are that age. And so the lever that seems to make most sense and, and that researchers are finding can be especially effective is working with the, the parents of those kids um, to create more stressful, warm, responsive environments in the home. Yeah. Uh, sometimes that seems like a huge amount of work, but what these interventions show is that relatively short um, uh, interventions with those parents yeah. uh, can really transform the environment in a home and thus transform the life of a child. Talking with Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Paul. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink. And you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom. I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. My name is Dale Pazinski. I'm 19 years old, and this is how I live United. I've always been kind of a computer geek, and I found a way to use those skills to help the homeless in my community. For people facing hard times, computer skills and a basic resume are so important. It may seem like a small thing, but it makes a huge difference in people's lives. So with United Way, I created a program where I work with the homeless. Together, we go through their whole job history, write a resume, and then save it on their very own USB drive. We provide workbooks and training certificates. I even budgeted for cupcakes so we can celebrate as a class when one of our people gets a job. That's huge. When somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. That's what Living United feels like to me. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Paul Tuff, who's the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. And, Paul, we were just talking before the break about uh, working with parents and how that is an, is an important part of, of helping the kids. I mean, I understand that you know, poverty and, and you talk about the, uh, so many other social ills, I guess, besides poverty, tend to be generational in a way that, you know, the parents who are having some of these problems or had these problems when they were growing up are probably more likely to have kids who have those kinds of problems. And so does it matter whether you start with the parents or the kids? Well, I think the interventions that are most effective do both, you know. So so certainly working with um, with low-income kids is, is always important, and there's a lot that can be done with them in the home and in school. 
but I think what, what researchers are discovering is that only working on kids and not thinking about parents is missing this, this great opportunity. Um, and, and so I, I think, I think in, when we think about policy, we have this reluctance to try to you know, intervene in, in, in private families, you know, to sort of give parents advice and support uh, that might change the way that they're dealing with their kids. We think that's just the family's business. And, and it absolutely is. We shouldn't be you know, intervening against anyone's will. But what's really clear to me in spending time in some of these programs that are working to support uh, parents, especially parents who are you know, living in really difficult circumstances, is that parents are really eager for this kind of help, at least the ones that, I, that I've reported on. They, they, um, yeah, and, and the programs that work the best are not sort of preaching to parents or you know, taking a superior attitude. They're saying you know, parenting is hard. And this is something as a parent that I'm certainly aware of. You know, I think we all need help as parents. And so uh, programs that work directly with parents, trying to give them uh, sort of targeted support to change the emotional quality of their relationships with their kids, it can have this really tremendous effect. You know, I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about discipline. And there's, if, you, if people are interested in this, they can look up these statistics on their own. But looking at kids who are disciplined, kids who are suspended, expelled from school, tends to fall predominantly on lower income and minority kids. And what are the effects of that, not only on the kids, because I understand that once once you get a kid who's suspended from school, they're much more likely to end up repeating a grade, they end, end up losing out socially because their peers are moved on someplace else. But you talk about some of the effects on the other kids, the kids who are not left behind or not expelled. Talk about that. Yeah, this is a study out of uh, Kentucky that I, I didn't know about until I started reporting this book. But you, even people who, who admit that suspending kids uh, is not great for those kids themselves, they, they often support the, the, the policy, which has been predominant in, in American public schools over the last 20 years, of, of suspending kids, you know, the sort of zero-tolerance uh, programs, uh, zero-tolerance policies for, for kids who act up or disobey uh, teachers in school. And, but they say well, the, the reason we need to do that is for the rest of the kids. If we get rid of the troublemakers, the kids who are left behind can do better. And what this study from Kentucky found is, is exactly what you said, that actually being in a, in a school that suspends lots of kids, um, it has a negative effect even on the kids who don't get suspended. There's something about the atmosphere, um, sort of the emotional climate in a school that's created when you have that kind of contentious relationship between the students and the teachers and the administrators that stresses everybody out. And that schools that are able to take a um, an approach to discipline that is much more about trying to solve problems, trying to address root causes of why some kids, you know, misbehave or get upset or act up, that those schools, the, the climate for all students changes and changes in a much more positive kind of way. But I think you're going to hear back from teachers and from administrators who are going to say we are understaffed and we are under budget and the only way that we can get everybody else to have, you know, the other 23 kids in the class to have a remotely positive educational experience is to boot out number 24. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it, and uh, I think that I think that is what a lot of um, what a lot of teachers think. But I think that what is um, striking to me about this data is that it really calls that into question. And I think it makes us think, like, well, why are we really suspending so many kids? Another statistic about suspensions that struck me um, was that in Chicago, which is one of the places which is, is most clearly studied, most of the suspensions were not for um, violence or even sort of threats of violence. It was for talking back in class, you know, like not following dress code, um, 
you know, having a cell phone when you weren't supposed to have one. And, you know, these are problems, like you need to have rules, you need to have consequences for not following rules, but they aren't really about improving safety in school, which is, I think, how we, de- how we describe it often. They're just for kids who have trouble regulating their impulses. And, and what the research shows is that there are lots of other ways to work with those kids, that the reason that, that so many students struggle in that realm is because of the way they've grown up and what that's done to their stress response system. And actually, this is not an unsolvable problem, that when you work with those kids and give them you know, the kind of connection and support that they need, they, their behavior often changes. Uh, but the way that we deal with kids like that in school has exactly the opposite effect. It just amps up the confrontation, amps up the anxiety in the classroom and in the school, and those kids just become more and more troubled. Talk a little bit about, uh, going back to the topic of your previous book, about what grit and perseverance are and why they're so important. Sure. So, again, in my last book, I I talked about this whole suite of non-cognitive skills, and grit and perseverance uh, are central, I think, to this this growing field of trying to understand what this non-cognitive realm is all about. And what I think every teacher understands is that when kids are able to persevere uh, in the classroom, when they're able to stick with um, problems, to bounce back after disappointments, that's an essential part of learning, you know, because you can't learn without failing a few times along the way, and you can't deal properly with failure unless you really know how to persevere. The problem that I talk about in this new book is that these sort of environmental forces, which are true in so many kids, in the lives of so many kids who are growing up in poverty, make it much more difficult for them to persevere. Um, it's just harder to feel the, the kind of emotional um, centeredness that you need in order to say, okay, fine, I didn't get it right that time, but I'll get it right the next time. You know, that's hard for anybody. It's like, it's a bummer to fail at, <laughs> I mean, to fail at anything. It's, it's, a, it's, it's difficult emotionally to deal with setbacks. And so when kids get the kind of support that they need to feel like, yeah, there's a reason to persevere, um, there's a purpose to what I'm doing, there is support that I can get from the people around me, they're much more likely to, to try again. And without trying again, uh, it's really difficult to learn anything. And how do you get these kids to try again? Well, I think it's really about the climate in, in the classroom and in the school as a whole. It goes back to you know, things as, as basic as discipline policies. When those discipline policies are in place that, that are geared toward um, excluding kids and suspending kids, uh, it makes it much, more, much less likely that they're going to feel the, the kind of belonging that they need to feel at school in order to want to persevere. Um, when they're doing work in the classroom that is you know, boring and repetitive and not particularly challenging, they're less likely to have the sort of mindsets, the sort of feelings that make them want to persevere. And so I I think some people took this early research on things like grit and perseverance to say, like, okay, we know that it's important to persevere. We just need to, you know, like yell at kids enough (laughs) until they just start persevering at things. And in fact, what the psychological research shows is that kids persevere when they feel a sense of uh, belonging and competence and autonomy. And those are things that you can't, like, lecture kids about. <laughs> you can't just persuade kids to feel a sense of belonging in school. You actually have to create an environment of belonging in the school. Yeah. And then when you do that, and it, it's a lot of work, but it's it's definitely not impossible, and it changes the, the, the whole feel of the school, mm. um, not only for the students but for the teachers as well. You only have just a minute left, but I want you to talk about something. This is probably a discussion for a whole, a whole other show. But 
I mean, in a way, you want, I want to say, okay, look, the people who are in the lower income levels, they don't vote as much. And so they haven't got the kind of political power. And so it would be very easy to say, well, okay, so they don't vote, so what's the point then? Uh, I mean, for politicians to say that, because a lot of what you're talking about, the kinds of things that need to be done, need to be done on a, on a policy level. And how do you explain to people that are voters that they need to be paying attention to this stuff that may not affect them directly? You know, I, I think there's a couple of levels on which on which one can appeal, and that I try to in this book to appeal to to those of us who aren't uh, in low-income homes. And one is, I think that that 51% number um, to to realize that this is not this is not a side issue. This is not a few you know troubled kids who we can just ignore. This is most of our public school population right now. And if we want to have a successful country. Um, you know, now and certainly 10 and 20 years in the future, writing off 51% of our students is not, you know, is not a healthy strategy. Paul Tuff, the author of Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Paul, great to have you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brutt. Now, I frequently ask for reader and listener comment, and so here's one that was a direct result of a listener writing in. Dear Mr. Depp, in one of your columns a few months ago, you responded to a new dad who wasn't feeling terribly connected to his baby. Your advice was realistic and sensible, except for one thing. Toward the end of your answer, you recommended that he tickle his baby. Tickling can sometimes become cruel, especially with toddlers or older children. There are other ways to have fun with the baby and make him or her smile. I have to admit that your email surprised me. I never thought for a second that tickling was anything but fun for kids. But after several other readers wrote in with the same basic comment, I took a look at the soft underbelly of the tickling industrial complex. And joking aside, you make a very good point, one that I think is important to share. So let's start with a little history. Some anthropologists believe that tickling is nature's way of encouraging parents to interact with their babies. Most of us would agree that giggling babies are a lot more enjoyable to be around than crying ones. Others believe that our response to tickling are self-protective. The areas that tend to be the most ticklish, underarms and stomach, the bottoms of the feet, are also extremely sensitive. The self-defense theory may explain why our instinctive reaction to being tickled is to push away whatever's tickling us, whether that's a human attacker or a nasty insect. So what's wrong with tickling? Well, like anything else, in moderation, it's usually not a big deal. The problem is that the tickler and tickalee don't often agree on the definition of moderation. In the tickler's defense, we tend to interpret children's laughter as an indication that they're happy with what's going on. 
but with tickling. The laughter that's being produced is a physiological reaction to touch and may have very little to do with actual enjoyment. That's where things start getting a little dicey. Most of us can remember a time, or more than one, where we were tickled well beyond the point when it had stopped being fun. And we can also remember the frightening feeling of helplessness and being out of control when we couldn't get the tickler or ticklers to stop, either because he or she or they refused to stop or because we were gasping so hard that we simply couldn't get the words out of our mouth. Helplessness and fear can turn to humiliation and shame when the tickled child has an accident or bursts into tears. Unwanted tickling tells kids that A, bigger people have a right to touch little people whenever and however they please, and B, that little people have to go along with whatever bigger people want them to do. The solution? Well, it's a two-step process. First, put your child in charge of the when. Let the child ask you to tickle. If you'd like to do some tickling, ask first. Either way, it's your child's call. Second, put the child in charge of how long. Have him come up with a safe word or a gesture that means we're done. That could be an attempt to roll away or a firm stop and pay attention to the signals. Every minute or two, take a break and ask your child whether he wants to continue, even if he hasn't done or said anything to get you to stop. The paying attention to signs piece of this is especially important with infants who have neither the vocabulary nor the physical ability to indicate that they've had enough. They can start fussing or crying, though, and that is a pretty big hint that you should stop right now. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.